the What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Before we start, let me take a moment and let you know that I really appreciate your support. Many of my listeners follow the other work that I do, be it my writings, my consulting work with Kindred Collective, or the speaking that I do on faith and justice. And I've got to tell y'all, your continued support means a lot to me. And because of that, I want to let you know about two simple ways that you can continue to support me. The first is that you can take a second and leave a five-star rating on this podcast. It is really quick, really easy to do, but it helps other listeners find this content, which is crucial for the growth of the podcast. Secondly, if you're active on social media, follow me. I'm on Instagram as thoughtful underscore revolutionary, and I'm on Facebook as Benjamin J. Tapper. Once again, thank you so much for your continued support and encouragement. It gives me hope that together we can create the world that we want to live in. All right, now let's get to the episode. Let's talk about that dreaded R word. It's one of the most hated words in all of society. Politicians rarely use it. Faith leaders typically don't bring it up, and it has fallen out of fashion in respectable conversations. I'm talking, of course, about reparations. Whenever that word is said, the common tropes and defenses immediately come out. I mean, one we hear all the time. People say, ah, we can't do it because it's impractical. We can't do it. How would we pay for it? If we did it, how would we decide who would get the money? Wait, why are we paying for something that happened hundreds of years ago? My ancestors didn't own slaves. Now, I'm sure you've heard some versions of these comments. Unfortunately, I think they're designed to skirt the issue rather than tackle the actual problems that we really need to wrestle with. In this episode of the What Would It Take podcast, we're going to explore the concept of reparations. Why are they necessary? Who should they go to? And what would reparations practically look like? If you're still listening, then you must be wondering, what would it take to repair the harm that has been done to the black community? Keep listening to find out. Before we continue, I do want to note that there will be references to violence throughout this episode. Sometimes it will be physical, Sometimes I'll be referencing sexual violence. Most of the time, I'll be talking about systematic violence. If you feel activated or triggered at any point, please take care of yourself and above all, listen with care. Okay, why do we need reparations? As we explore this initial question, I want to invite you to suspend whatever ideas you have about what reparations mean. I think it will be much easier to hold the ideas we're talking through if you aren't already imagining something specific in this moment. In fact, let's just change the question a little. Instead of why do we need reparations, let's ask ourselves, why do we need to offer repair? And frankly, there are a lot of reasons, but we're going to start with two words. Chattel slavery. As you may have heard, millions of Africans were captured forced onto ships and brought to North, Central, and South America. Thousands died during the Central Passage, and thousands more endured physical, psychological, and systemic violence once they arrived. Men and women were sexually assaulted, harassed, denigrated, violently abused, and even killed. Children were separated from their parents and siblings. Husbands were taken from their wives and children, and people were forced to work in inhumane conditions, and their living quarters were abhorrent. 
Now, if we focus solely on the amount of labor that enslaved people produced, which wasn't compensated, we're talking about an estimated $5. trillion in today's currency. Thomas Kramer, a researcher at the University of Connecticut, calculated this number based on the wages paid to laborers in the antebellum period and assuming an average of 12 hours of work a day, seven days a week. Now, his estimate isn't the only estimate. Other researchers and experts have estimated that this number could actually be anywhere from three to 10 trillion. I've even seen estimates as high as $17 trillion. And that is just the labor. That number doesn't account for the amount of wealth that families, industries, and entire states accrued on the backs of enslaved labor. The insurance industry, the banking industry, clothing production, and agriculture are just a few of the major economic industries that exist because of the labor of enslaved black folks. Truthfully, the legacy of slave labor is still being felt today, and people across the country are still benefiting from it today. Not to mention the fact that the economic and political disenfranchisement of slavery didn't end when slavery ended. Though, due to the 13th Amendment and the last four decades of mass incarceration, one could argue that enslavement never actually ended. It just changed a little bit. But that's a topic for another podcast episode. In the 80-some years between Reconstruction and World War II, over 4,400 acts of lynching took place in the United States. Many of these included multiple people that were being lynched. This means that several thousand people of all ages and genders were brutally murdered at the hands of white people and white mobs. But why? Well, this was done as a way to maintain the social order and to prevent black people from becoming full participants in society. It was terrorism. Lynching wasn't the only tool that was used to target and marginalize black communities post-slavery, however. Jim Crow-era laws segregation, and redlining policies ensured that black Americans were systematically prevented from accessing the full benefits granted to them as citizens. For those that don't know, the practice of redlining was a banking policy in which areas that contained a high number of racial minorities or low-income residents were denied access to loans and other financial investment opportunities. In practice, this meant that white people and white communities could get business loans or home loans and that black families and black communities couldn't unless they relied on black financial institutions, which weren't always that plentiful. The result is that black communities across the country were denied access to traditional tools of wealth building. And even when black families and communities were able to attain some level of wealth, the white powers that be used terrorism and violence to forcibly take it. I just mentioned the thousands of people, including children, that were lynched at the hands of white mobs. Well, what do you think happened to their businesses and to their homes? They were taken over by the white community. That wealth was lost. It didn't go to other family members. In fact, if there were family members remaining, they were often driven out of town too. So lynching was not only a tool of terrorism, but it was also a way to rob black people and black families of the wealth and the resources they had accumulated. Here's a not-so-fun question for you. What do the cities of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Springfield, Illinois, Colfax, Louisiana, Wilmington, North Carolina, Washington, D.C., Rosewood, Florida, New York City, New York, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Memphis, Tennessee, East St. Louis, Missouri, Charleston, South Carolina, and Chicago, Illinois have in common? No guesses? Well, they're all sites of racial massacres in which white residents or militia members attacked and killed black residents. 
In some of these cities, like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for instance, the entire town would be destroyed, and Tulsa was firebombed, in fact. In other places, after the massacre took place, the area would be destroyed, like houses, buildings, churches completely burned down, and then the area would be flooded so that a lake could be built for their white families and community to enjoy. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, take a minute and listen to episode 14 of this podcast. I referenced several communities that had this happen to them. And lest you think that we're in the clear now that the era of lynching is over or it's at least far less common and segregation is no longer the law of the land, you need to remember that mass incarceration has disproportionately impacted the black community. Black men and women are regularly arrested at higher rates for the same crimes as their white counterparts. They experience police brutality and are killed by police at rates higher than any other racial group. And even if they serve their time and reenter society, their criminal record greatly limits their access to jobs that pay a livable wage. Worse still, that same record can also prevent them from accessing affordable, safe housing. Are you still not convinced that we need repair? All right, then I guess we could, I don't know, unpack the historic disinvestment in public education, which has led to schools in BIPOC communities lacking the resources and funding they need to adequately train and educate students. Or we could talk about the housing market and the continued existence of housing discrimination. Or we could touch on employment discrimination that happens in cities all across the United States. Or maybe you want to talk about the recent reports that have shown that black homeowners who want to sell their homes regularly receive estimates that are below those of their white counterparts. I mean, there are literally news stories in which a black family will have an inspector come in and they'll get one quote on their house. And then they take down all the black art, all their family photos, and have a white friend of theirs come in with a different inspector. And suddenly, magically, their home has significantly increased in value. Coincidence? No. We could also discuss the discrepancy in infant mortality and maternal mortality in our healthcare system, in which black women and children die at alarming rates when compared not only to their white counterparts, but other so-called developed countries. Folks, it is no accident that the average net worth of a black family in the United States is roughly $17,000 as of 2016, and that same number for white families in the U.S. is over $170,000. And before you try to tell yourself that it's because uh, black families are working less or not seizing the opportunities that are presented to them, I also want to direct your attention to the fact that white high school dropouts have more wealth in the United States than black college graduates. Let that sink in. These outcomes are not coincidental. They're the result of centuries of violence and disenfranchisement. That is why repair is needed. That's why we have to not only have these conversations about reparations, but we've got to put reparations into practice. Oh, and the U.S. has a history of reparations. Most recently, the federal government paid out a total of $1.6 billion in 1988 to the living survivors of the Japanese internment camps. There's even a precedent for reparations as a result of the Civil War. Slave owners were paid out $300 for each enslaved person that was freed. Yes, you heard me correctly. Slave owners were given money by the federal government, but over 150 years later, black Americans are still wondering where their restitution is. Okay, so we've established the justifications for repair or reparations. In short, the black community in the U.S. has been systematically 
and often violently excluded from the typical means of wealth building. And this has happened for, I don't know, over 400 years. Now, what should reparations look like? And this is not an easy question, to be fair. And again, whenever this conversation comes up, people immediately start imagining that we're talking about direct cash payments. If I say we need reparations, someone will assume I'm saying that every black person in the U.S. should get a check in the mail. While that is one approach, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, I'm saying it's definitely not the only possible approach. I'm not even sure it's the best or most effective approach, honestly. So let's cover some of our other options. One idea is for reparations to be presented as a package of policies designed to erase black debt while building black wealth. These policies would include tuition remission for descendants of enslaved black Americans at all public and private two- or four-year universities, student loan forgiveness for descendants of enslaved black Americans, down payment grants and housing revitalization grants for descendants of enslaved black Americans, business startup grants, business expansion grants, and land purchases for descendants of enslaved black Americans. So taken together, those four or so policy proposals would help decrease black debt, increase housing equity, and revitalize black neighborhoods while lowering the financial burden of higher education, thus allowing more black students to pursue careers that offer a living wage. As I said, though, there are a variety of opinions on what reparations could look like. And as great as some of those ideas are, there are still other options. The National African American Reparations Commission calls for a 10-point plan that includes, among many other things, a formal apology and establishment of an African Holocaust Institute, the right to land for social and economic development, funds for cooperative enterprises and socially responsible entrepreneurial development, and resources for the health and wellness and healing of black families and communities. Other aspects of their plan touch on repairing the damages caused by the criminal justice system, affordable housing, and strengthening communications and information infrastructure. It's a really robust plan. Each of the 10 points has subpoints and an explanation. So if you have a second and you're curious, I encourage you to go to their website and check out that plan. It's really, really interesting. But as you can see, there are a myriad of alternatives to direct cash payments that are possible. We just have to decide that some form of reparations are needed and then listen to those impacted before determining what those reparations have to look like. Now this brings us to the question of who should receive reparations. I recognize the complexity of this question as a, a biracial black man myself. I mean, do I deserve reparations since I'm also white? Would that be fair or equitable? It sounds like a question worth asking, but I'm not sure it's as pertinent to this discussion as some might want us to believe. I mean, I say that because Biracial and multiracial black people have also felt the brunt of discrimination and marginalization as a result of slavery, Jim Crow segregation, lynching, mass incarceration, and redlining. So it's not like just because someone has a white ancestor, they're suddenly immune from the plight of the black community in the United States. And we should always err on the side of helping more people rather than fewer people. So personally, I say that anyone that identifies as black or is a descendant of an enslaved black American should be eligible for reparation programs. And it might also help if we expand our focus beyond if person A or person B is eligible 
and move this discussion into more of a communal discussion, right? The black community isn't monolithic by any means, but I think when we're talking about reparations, we are looking at the prolonged impact of systemic injustice on a large group of people. So it makes sense then to think about reparations, not in terms of which individual should or shouldn't receive something, but how can we utilize these resources to uplift the entire community? I think that's really important. And then the question of who is black enough becomes much less of a distraction. Truthfully, at the end of the day, opponents of reparations will always use this sort of questioning and and curiosity about who is or isn't eligible, who is or isn't black enough. They'll use it as a way to divide the black community and shut down any talk of repair. And we absolutely cannot let that happen. Okay, but but why should we care? Why is this a topic for a faith-based or Christian podcast? Well, modern Christianity has been obsessed, and I mean obsessed, with the idea of racial reconciliation for a while now. I hear it almost everywhere. But how can we reconcile when the underlying causes of harm are not being addressed? I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. Jesus cared about the physical situation of his people. He not only encouraged his followers to trust God and to follow God, but he took care of their hunger healed their diseases, and criticized the wealthy while bestowing God's favor on those that were in poverty due to an unjust economic system. And if we're taking racial reconciliation seriously, folks, we have to address the underlying material causes and roots of inequity. Otherwise, our talk is just talk, and quite frankly, our faith is worthless. Too often, racial reconciliation stops at public conversations and fails to take into account the broader structural mechanisms that work to undermine the life and lived experiences of the black community. I often look at the brilliance and creativity of my black family and friends, and I can't help but wonder what else we could do if we had greater access to healing practices, if we were able to build generational wealth with greater ease, or if we didn't have to live under the constant threat of state violence. What kind of impact could we have if our spirits were free from generational terror? I mean, black folks are already dope, so I can only imagine what we'd be capable of if true restoration were attempted. How many lives might be saved? How many families could remain together? How many more businesses could be started? How many world-changing inventions would we design? How many of the world's current problems could we solve if we weren't just trying to survive day in and day out? If any of these questions gripped you, then you too care about reparations. Now, what can we do? This might sound too easy, but the first solution I'm going to offer is to talk with your friends and family. When you're meeting for coffee dates, sipping wine over dinner, or grabbing a white claw with your girls, talk about reparations. Do some research and share what you're learning. Speak with your children about why we need repair. If you're a teacher, maybe you can weave it into your lesson plans. Just use your imagination and find ways to begin shifting the perception of those around you. Secondly, I say, but I always say, call your local and federal elected officials and tell them you want a bill on reparations to be passed. If you're part of a small group, study reparations and contact your representatives together. When politicians knock on your door or call you and ask you what you care about, tell them we need a comprehensive reparations package to repair our communities and strengthen our families you got to keep speaking this message until people listen. 
Next, I'll invite you to press the private institutions that you're connected with to begin applying a lens of repair. I mean, banks can forgive student loans right now. Colleges and universities can offer tuition remission today. Financial institutions and nonprofits can offer grants to start businesses or expand business operations in the black community. We don't have to wait for the federal government to do everything. And we certainly can't always wait for them to do the right thing. So start where you have access and influence. Next, I'm going to tell you to think about which organizations you give your money to. Do they have a public stance on reparations? Are they thinking and talking about it? Have you donated to organizations and people that are leading the fight for reparations? If not, consider restructuring your giving habits to support that work. Finally, think about what you can do with your equity, with your influence, and with your capital. Is there a black college graduate whose student loans you can help pay off? Can you help a soon-to-be black homeowner make that initial down payment on their home or can you help them offset the closing costs on the home they're trying to buy or the car they need? It sounds simple, but give your money to black people. We'll take it. Maybe you don't have extra money to give, but how can you use your professional network or your connections to help someone find a more lucrative job opportunity or help them get into that school that they desperately want to go to? Maybe you can introduce a prospective business owner or entrepreneur to someone who has the capital to help them start things up. I don't know where your connections can take you. I don't know how you can use the extra money you have, but I trust that you can figure it out. If we're going to take the call for reparations seriously, we've got to apply pressure to private businesses and the government, but we must also remain imaginative and selfless. You can make an impact today, even if it's small. So open your heart and open your ears. Maybe the spirit will nudge you to take over six months of a student loan repayment for a college grad. Maybe the spirit will nudge you to help a up-and-coming black uh, politician or an aspiring politician to network in a way that allows them to break through. Maybe the spirit will nudge you to donate to an association that is actively pressuring Congress to pass a national reparations bill. Friends, I have no idea how the spirit might move you. I'm simply reminding you that the Spirit will indeed move you if you remain open. So please, remain open. What would it take to repair the harm that has been done to the black community? Well, we know the answers, so let's get to work. Thank you for listening to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. If you appreciate this work and want to support me, please take a moment and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this content and for our audience and community to grow. And I also encourage you to take a moment and share this podcast on your social media platforms so that others can listen to and reflect on the same things that you're reflecting on. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have questions or topics you want to suggest, feel free to email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. That's Tapper with two Ps. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for holding my vulnerability and for the parts of myself that I offered today and for going with me on this journey. We've got some answers. Now, let's get to work. Mm-hmm.